0: Our Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day. As we look at the snow-capped peaks around, we're uh, made aware of your goodness and, Lord, of the beauty of your holiness and the provision that you make for us day by day. We're thankful, Lord, that it is but a glimpse of what heaven will be like. We are thankful, Lord, that you are working in our hearts day by day to draw us close to yourself, to make in us that image of yourself. Lord, we ask you to bless and to guide our study of your word today, that you'll open our minds to truth, and I pray that it will be fixed firmly in our hearts and might serve to be the guide through our, in our walk with you. We commit ourselves to you for this hour, in Christ's name, amen. You should have page 18 in front of you, of the outline. We're going to begin the fifth chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter five. This is one of those chapters that uh, many kind of pass over very quickly because it says, so-and-so lived so many years and he begat sons and daughters and he died and -and so-and-so begat so, (laughs) but it is very interesting in many of the things which are taught here. Let's read the first five verses to begin with. Genesis 5-1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when he created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died." Now, when you think about this, this is really quite an amazing passage. First of all, we find in this passage the very first reference in Scripture to writing. It says, this is the book of the generations. Now, the word translated book here is also translated in other passages of the Old Testament as writing, as scroll, as uh, records. The term which is given as generations here is not really correctly, I I shouldn't say incorrectly, but uh, the word generation does not really well translate it in English. This particular word uh, is used several times in the book of Genesis and is thought of sometimes as to be breaking points in the book of Genesis. It's also used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Basically, it means that which originated in, or more succinctly histories. Implied in this this first sentence of the fifth chapter is, first of all, the possibility that Moses may have had a written source for a portion of the book of Genesis. That may be what it means when it says, this is the book. Also, it's possible although most believe not probably, likely, that Adam may have known how to write and that he actually wrote down many of the instances that are recorded in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and that that record was available to Moses. Now, very few believe that that's highly probable, but at least it's a possibility when, again, you remember the fact that Adam and Eve were extremely intelligent, far beyond virtually anyone that has come since that time because of the devolution of the human race. But whether they actually achieved the uh, capacity to write or not, we don't know. Generally speaking, in the course of history, writing is said to have begun to evolve or to develop around 4,000 BC. And in that millennium, from 4,000 to 3,000, writing went through the various stages of, of uh, you know, pictographs and ideographs and all the way down to phonograms, at least in the third millennium, coming down to probable phonograms. But there are a lot of things in history that we have record of that may not be accurate. In fact, there's a man by the name of Immanuel Velikovsky, I think I've mentioned him before, who's a bit of a radical and many have, in studying him, thought that he's really off the wall. But he argues that uh, history as we know it is really uh, all out of sync with reality, and that the time periods are much more compressed uh, than we uh, tend to think that they have been, and that the dating frame that we have going back into, say, the 3rd and 4th millennium BC is really all askew. And he has many different uh, evidences to support his view. But it has not been widely accepted. Now we have to remember that modern thinking in the areas of anthropology and history and sociology and psychology and all these different areas are all based in the same framework, and that is of the evolution of man over eons of time. And anything that tends to contradict that tends to be neglected or to be uh, ignored because no one wants to break with the standard framework that they insist exists. And part of that is, of course, a spiritual battle, the fact that those who are committed to this do not want to be accountable to a god. And therefore, of course, they rule god out. It makes them feel better. A third factor here, and probably what this really means, is that Moses used this terminology, that this is the book of the generations, uh, simply to separate sections of his account. And this is the book which he wrote. These are the writings which he put down that God gave him by method of inspiration and that he broke these down into what are called the Toledeth, or generations, here. And that this particular one refers primarily to the genealogy here of the fifth chapter that we're going to look at in a few moments. Now, in the first two verses of this fifth chapter, we find a summary of the focus of the first chapter of Genesis, of the creation of man and woman. In what? the likeness of God. you notice that it says, in the day that God created him, he made them in the likeness of God. Now, God is not, in recounting this particular thing, uh, I- ignoring the female here in saying him and, and naming them Adam or man. That simply is the word used there. Name them Adam. The name Adam, as we already have noted, simply means Man in Hebrew. And it says, he created them male and female. And he blessed them. God created Adam and Eve in his likeness. And it's very important for us to remember that in what is known historically as the imago Dei, the image of God. Now, when we contrast that with what comes at the latter part of the second verse, or actually on into the third verse, where we read that Adam fathered a son, but this son is not described as being brought into existence in the image of God, but in the image and likeness of whom? Of Adam. Seth is not in the image of God in the sense that Adam and Eve were originally created in the image of God, but in the image of the father Adam and, of course, the mother Eve. That is in the fallen image. Seth was born depraved as every man and woman has been born since the fall. He was born with a fallen nature, not in the image of God as Adam and Eve were. They were perfectly in the image of God, not meaning they had arms and legs and so forth, but they had the spirit that was in communion with God and made after his likeness. Seth was a man who had to come to know God and in the same sense that we have had to come to know God, come to him with repentance and seeking that birth, that new birth, if you will. Now, throughout the Old Testament, they don't talk about the new birth as Jesus introduces the new birth the Nicodemus in the third chapter of John. But the concept is the same. Whether you're talking about the faith of Noah or the faith of Abraham or the faith of Moses or whoever you're talking about in the Old Testament, it's the same basic thing. They didn't put faith specifically in the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, but they had to place their faith in God and in his word that he is true. And and that faith is what brings them into a status of righteousness. Verses four and five of this fifth chapter constitute Adam's epitaph. Physical death was introduced into this world because of the fall, because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It finally catches up with Adam. After 930 years, he finally meets his demise or his maker, if you will. But he did live 930 years. It's kind of incredible when we think of that in the terms of our lifespan, is it not? Especially when you think about the fact that when Adam died, his son was 800. That is Seth. Of course, Cain, if Cain was still alive and probably he was not, uh, would have even been older. And, and other sons and daughters that were born, certainly between Cain and Seth, if they were still alive, they were even older than that. Now, of all of the recorded lifespans in the book of Genesis, only three are longer than that of Adam. Of course, Methuselah, who lived to be 969, and Jared, who lived to be 962, and then finally Noah, who lived to be 950. Those are the only ones who outlived Adam. Now, it's interesting to note Eve is not mentioned here. We, We don't know how long Eve lived. She might have lived nearly as long as Adam. We don't know. It's kind of interesting. If we take these generations as listed in the fifth chapter of Genesis as being literal in terms of so-and-so many years of age, a son was born, he lived X number of years, and then a son was born, and if we add those all together, if we can do that, now there are many who look at this and say that these actually are sort of like generational heads. And and that we're talking about long spans of time here between these, and I've seen statistics and ways that they've tried to show that Adam was probably created 13,000 B.C. and and how this all might fit together. But, But if we take it directly as it is here, at the time that Adam died, there could have been eight generations attending his funeral. When Adam died... His great-grandson had a great-grandson who had a grandson who was fifty-six years old. (laughs) Or you can always turn it the other way around. You know, his that last one there, Lamech, he had a great-grandfather who had a great-grandfather who had a grandfather, you know. I mean it's kind of scary when you think about it. Yeah, it's a good thing Hallmark wasn't around yet. <laughs> you spent your life there getting cards ready and sending them out. Uh, now, what's interesting is that there really is no reason for us to believe that years were of any different length in those days than they are now. Now, various things have been postulated. The earth was closer to the sun, and now it's or, or farther out. You know, something was different, therefore years were shorter. Uh, than they are today. It's possible that the year is worth 360 days in terms of the computation, as opposed to 365 and a quarter, because many of the ancients, as you know, uh, the circle, which comes from ancient Sumerian concepts, uh, was divided into 360 degrees. Well, why was the circle divided into 360 degrees? That seems like a strange number. Well, that was equivalent to what they assumed was the number of days in the ancient year. Now, it's not that the year only had 360 days, but that was the closest they could compute it in the ancient times. And that has carried all the way down today, and we still use 360 degrees in a circle, although that's a 6,000- and 7,000-year-old concept. <laughs> some things we don't change much, it seems like. And, and, and there are some indications, even in the ancient Hebrew world, that uh, they used a 360-day uh, year. But even so that five and a quarter days over 900 years doesn't really amount to that much. Maybe a couple of years, you know. So we're still talking about a man who lived an inordinate length of time compared to our lifestyle. Think about it for a minute. To have lived nearly a millennium. If you or I had been adamant, and we're living right to this day, we would have been born in the year 1062. That's four years before the uh, last major invasion of England. Uh, That's back in the Middle Ages. That's in the Dark Ages. You You would have lived through the Middle Ages. You would have lived through the Renaissance and the Reformation and, you know, the founding of the New World and Columbus and all the rest of it up till today. It's hard to even think of the possibility of having lived in the Civil War, let alone back at that time. Of course, obviously, in those days, all those events hadn't taken place and life was probably lived at a little bit slower pace. Today, it would be horrible to think that we might have to live for another 900 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, all those changes, the way things are going, trusting the Lord will return soon. Let's look at verse 6 and, and look through this uh, genealogy here. Genesis 5, 6. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Canaan, or Canaan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Canaan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh... Were 905 years and he died. And Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. And Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Let's stop there. Now, does that really kind of catch you does just grip you? Well, when you think about somebody living 162 years before he has this particular son, it's a bit of amazing thought. Here we have the record of five of the 10 antediluvian patriarchs, that is pre-flood patriarchs. And you'll notice that in every case it says they had other sons and daughters. We, ha- we have no idea how many, but probably Many. They were probably extremely prolific people. They had little reason for them not to be. And so probably they had dozens and dozens of children. Now, we do not know whether the patriarch mentioned is the oldest son or not. Whether the guy, you know, lives 65 years and he becomes the father of Jared, and then he has other sons and daughters, or whether Jared was the first, you know, somewhere near the first, It doesn't say, and and we can't assume necessarily that he was the first person born. What are the what is the likelihood of the first child being born to this person always being a male? Not very high, you know, about half the time, almost. What we're looking at is the key figure of the generation, not necessarily the first, but the key figure of that particular generation. Probably the spiritual leader of the generation. Now if you look, we won't turn to the first chapter of 1 Chronicles, but there you have this list given again. And if you go to the third chapter of Luke, again you have this list given. These men are listed in, in the order here. Now what that tells us is that the Old Testament historians and the Gospel writer Luke believed that this list of individuals was not a mythological list, but was a historical list. And when he gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he goes back through these real people. That's the way Luke views them, as real people, not as some kind of a you know, legendary forefather. Now, Seth and Enosh, we've talked about a little bit before in the fourth chapter. Kenan, whose name may have meant Smith. Mahalalel, whose name may have meant God be praised. And Jared, whose name may have meant descent. They don't really know for sure the actual meanings of these names because they are so ancient and generally uh, unreproduced. You'll notice that they lived an average of 917 years each. You add them up and divide them by five, and you you end up with 917 years. Now, during the, the time of their life, they probably were the principal preachers of righteousness of their particular generation. And since their lifetimes overlapped, they certainly were able to encourage one another and support one another and disciple one another in this Righteousness preaching. There's really not a whole lot else we can gain from this particular passage uh, because obviously the importance is developing for the Hebrews the generational line, the lineage, because that was very important to them and would be very important for the lineage of Messiah. Let's look at verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now we come to a very unique person, not only in this fifth chapter of the genealogy, but really a unique person of the whole Old Testament and, if not, of the whole Bible. Now, we discovered that in many ways he was normal. He was married, and he had children. He had sons and daughters and and so forth, as we have listed there. But I think, and I've listed on your outline, at least four ways in which he was unique, unusual. First of all, he was the father of the oldest man ever to walk the planet Earth, Methuselah, who lived to be 969. Now, what would we do without Methuselah? I mean, we couldn't use the phrase, oh, he's as old as Methuselah, if it weren't for Methuselah. So we have to be thankful for him. (laughs) Actually, we have to be thankful that his, his years are recorded for us here because otherwise, how would we ever know who was the oldest? Secondly, while the rest of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah lived an average of 912 years, This man lived only 365, I mean a mere 365 years. I mean, he died died almost a child, (laughs) in comparison it would seem, uh, sort of like late teens or something. Thirdly, and this is where it becomes very interesting, we are twice told that he walked with God. Now, this is reminiscent of Adam's walk with God before the fall in the garden. Now, the verb which is translated walk in this context implies following in God's way. I'd like for us to just take a moment to turn to Psalm 119. And look at the first three verses of Psalm 119. This will help us to understand a little bit why what Enoch did was so important. Psalm 119 begins this way. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways, which is a definition of the verb in the context of this fifth chapter of Genesis and, of course, in the context of the 119th Psalm. So you look at this Psalm and you discover that they walk in his ways seems to also imply who seek him with all their heart, who walk in the law of the Lord, who observe his testimonies. All of this seems to be implied in this concept of walk, that Enoch was a man who was very close to his God, who walked hand in hand with God, observing what God had told people, human race, to do, doing it with all his heart, blameless in the sense that imputed righteousness had come to him because of his faith and his obedience. Not that he had never failed, because all are human and all of us fail. The word walk also emphasizes continuity of action. It doesn't just say step. It says walk. A walk is many steps, one after the other. Many of us take one step, but then we falter. But in the case of Enoch, it was a step after step after step after step into a walk of righteousness. Let's turn to Isaiah 33, verse 13. Isaiah thirty-three, thirteen. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity... He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and who shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water is sure. Notice what it implies and and what it produces. This walk of righteousness. It implies someone who doesn't take bribes, who doesn't take unjust gain, who doesn't hear or look upon evil. And as a result, his refuge will be the impregnable rock. That is, of course, God himself. And he will have his needs met physically and, of course, spiritually. This is the result of the walk. And this is what the walk implies. Fourthly, we discover that God took him from this planet alive. Now, you and I know, and we'll just turn to it to verify that, that one other person also left this planet alive that we know about from Scripture, and that, of course, was Elijah. In the second chapter of 2 Kings, verse 11, then it came about as they were going along talking that, behold, there appeared, a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And, of course, Elisha saw it and received the mantle." So we have two individuals recorded in in Scripture who went to heaven without dying, Elijah and Enoch. Now, what brought about this unusual response from God? What was there about Enoch? I mean, he walked with God, but others did, too. Well, let's turn back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, of course, fits with so many of these patriarchs. Hebrews 11, verse 5. In case we don't really believe that it means in Genesis that he was taken alive... The author of the Hebrews says, "'By faith Enoch was taken up "'so that he should not see death. "'And he was not found because God took him up, "'for he obtained the witness "'that before his being taken up, "'he was pleasing to God.'" This man was taken up because he was pleasing to God. Now, there's no way in which you and I can earn salvation And so we have to understand that although Enoch was a man who walked with God almost unprecedentedly, he still was not perfect, and it was in God's sovereign plan to take him so that this passage would be here and for possibly other reasons that we do not really understand. Turn, if you will, to Jude, the little book just before Revelation. Verse 14, Jude 14. Gives us a little more insight about Enoch that we do not have in the book of Genesis. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all un- all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And, of course, the reference is back to these false teachers in the previous verses who are like clouds without water, like wandering planets in the skies. Enoch prophesied. Genesis doesn't tell us that. How does Jude know? Well, many have tried to say what comes from certain hidden books that have not survived. Well, Jude was, if, if we believe the inspiration of Scripture, we have to believe that God gave to the writers truths which may not have been written down anywhere else, just as, certainly, Moses had to be given the inspiration of God as to the beginning part of the book of Genesis at least. Because who was there who would have known? Not even Adam knew the events which transpired before his creation. And so the inspiration of God gave to Moses this, so the inspiration of Jude gave to him this understanding. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a record or an oral tradition maybe, or even a written tradition of what had happened to Enoch and the fact that he had been a prophet. But the fact that it is here in Jude, if we believe in the divinely inspired word of God, inerrant, means that it is the truth, whatever was Jude's source. Now, from this latter passage in in Jude, it would appear that Enoch was a prophet who gave a prophetic message warning the wicked of judgment to come. Boy, you know, we're, we're still in the first 10 patriarchs, and already he's got to warn the wicked world of judgment to come. How quickly does the human race decline How quickly does mankind become fully depraved? Very quickly. Now, this prophecy may have been a warning of the impending flood. Or it may have been the very first prophecy, and many believe that that's what it's referring to, of the second coming of Christ in the end times. Because some of the wording here is similar to other passages which do refer, particularly in the book of Revelation, to the second coming of Christ. Now, certainly, Enoch would have prophesied without really understanding what he was saying, just as we're told. Many of the prophets prophesied not really knowing for sure what it was they were prophesying about. Now, Enoch was an example to his generation and to us. Can you imagine what it would have been like? One day, Enoch's gone and nobody knows where he went. Where's Enoch? Where's, where's Grandpa Enoch? <laughs> you know. Where's my great-grandson Enoch? You know. You know, was he taken in full view of, of others or not? We're not told. Simply that God took him. And certainly it would have been a testimony to that age. Just as many believe that the rapture will be a testimony to the age in which it occurs, our age maybe, Others argue, well, it won't make any difference because they'll have some kind of an excuse to cover it up. Well, those who are, are, are committed to, to going into hell, that's true. They'll find some excuse. Enoch was an example to us also, however. To walk with God in the way that Enoch did is God's will for you and for me. Let's look at a few New Testament passages along this line. First of all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. How much do we think about the fact that the life we live is to be lived so that we have a measure of worthiness in God's eyes. Now, that worthiness does not give us eternal life. Again, we cannot earn that. It's a gift of faith. But our desire should be to walk in a manner that glorifies His name, that testifies to the world that we are His. To not, as some would say, walk as close to the world as we can and still consider ourselves Christians, but to walk as far from the world is possible. Not, not to where we become weird in, in, in the true sense of the word weird, but weird as the world would look upon many Christians who believe God and believe His Word. Colossians 2, back up just a little bit. Verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We're to walk with God in a way where we understand what it means to be a believer and what it means to trust in him and not to be shaken about, as another passage says, by every wind of doctrine. Uh, I'm told that many times the cults follow major evangelical crusades to try to pick the fruit. People who are newborn in Christ but are uninstructed in Christ are easily won over into the cults because the cults sound good. And they're led into the way of the cult before they even have an understanding what it means to be a true believer, what it means to walk with God in truth. But we are not to be taken captive by the, the philosophies of the world, by deceptions of the world, by the traditions of men. Just because they've always done it this way doesn't mean that's the way it ought to be done and, of course, by the elementary principles of this world. We don't stand out on the beach and say, I am God, you know, or feel like somehow we can communicate with higher ascended masters and somehow reach Godhood. We understand God as he is taught in the Scripture. That's why it's so important we know this book. and We know it intimately because without knowledge of this, we're going to be led into vain philosophies and empty deceptions, especially if you sit in the chairs uh, of, of the major universities of our country and of the world, where empty philosophy is taught and, and where humanism is, is given as the gospel and where people go out totally empty spiritually. It says over the gate to the university, and the truth will set you free. But as we've noted before, they forget the first part of the, of the verse, you shall know Jesus Christ. And as you know Him, who is the truth, I am the way, the truth, and life, that truth shall set you free. Of course, at our, many of our major universities, that truth used to be taught, but not anymore. Galatians 5.25 if we live by the Spirit, meaning if we are positionally in Christ, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, let our experience be the expression of our position. If we are in Christ, we must walk as Christ would have us to walk. That's the life which is set before us. I was, I was reading, I, I can't even remember what I was reading now, just yesterday, I think it was, and, and it was talking about how many young people today are kind of rootless and, and, and uh, without foundation in the church because they look at their parents and their parents don't walk the walk of Christ. They see hypocrisy. They, they see a smiley face on Sunday and, and a, a Christian ease. But then during the week, it's a different thing. You know, the life that they walk during the week is, is not the God life, It's not the God walk. And kids are not gonna swallow that. I mean, they can see through it very easily. And quite often, you know, uh, Pastor Dale has, has mentioned the fact and, and Joe has mentioned the fact that uh, so often, what is it? I forgot the statistic they use now. of the young people who are in the church today will 10 years from now not be in the church? I don't know if that was the statistic, but some horribly high figure. Why? Is that the church's fault? Is that because we're not preaching the gospel or we're not fellowshipping Christ? No, I don't think so. It's mainly the fault of the parents. Not entirely, of course. We can't take the blame for every deviation of our children. But often it is because there has not been a faithful walk in the home that the kids have observed and then thus followed. And sometimes it's, 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 a, it's a walk over here of, of super, uh, you know, hyper Christianity of some sort, a narrow legalism, or the other side of, of a very loose you know, license type of Christianity. I think one of the most important things for us to do is study the scripture and know it so well that red flags fly before our eyes anytime we see false teaching anytime we see someone who is naming the name but not walking the walk and supposedly a Christian leader and that we can steer clear and know the way this was Enoch's position he walked the straight and narrow as it were he walked the life of faith. He was a testimony to his generation. He witnessed of the coming disaster. And God took him. Now, the Scripture in Hebrews tells us that some were taken or, or died because they were too good for this world in the sense of comparison to the world itself. Now, it would actually seem to us today it ought to be easier for you and for me to walk the walk than it was for Enoch. Because you and I have what? The whole Scripture. We have the completed work in our hands. We have the understanding from Genesis to Revelation. We know the beginning of the story, the end of the story, and we have all the information in between leading up to the death of Christ and the birth of the church. We have all that knowledge, which Enoch didn't have. And on top of that... We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, exactly how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament, there's a lot of argument about. Certainly the Holy Spirit was there. New birth only comes with the Holy Spirit. But there's an indwelling sense that apparently comes after the Holy Spirit descended. last, we have millions of fellow believers. How many did Enoch have? Well, probably not a whole lot, because when it comes to Noah's day, there was what? Noah. Probably by Enoch's day, there weren't too many left. But you and I have millions. We have everybody in this room, everybody in this... Well, I shouldn't say everybody in this church, but most people in this church. There are Christians all around the world that we have to pray for one another, support one another. So we have far less excuse for not walking the walk than Enoch. Now, some believe, and this is very speculative, of course, that because Enoch... Enoch didn't die, and Elijah didn't die, that they are the two prophets who will return to the earth in the end times, is recorded in the 11th chapter of Revelation, and will be the witnesses, and will be killed by the beasts, and will be raised again, and so, and so on and so forth. Well, that may be, but we can't say that's for sure, because there will be, at the time of the rapture, probably millions who will leave this planet without ever dying, the first physical death. And so, I don't think that necessitates it. Verse 25 of Genesis 5. Then Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. This was Enoch's son, Methuselah. It's kind of interesting that the man of the ten patriarchs who lived the shortest fathered the one who lived the longest. Some believe that the meaning of his name was when he dies comma, judgment. Now, the following facts from Genesis 5 and 7, I think, are kind of significant. If you, if you look carefully, you discover Methuselah, we're told, lived 187 years, and then Lamech was born. So he was 187 when Lamech was born. Then we're told that Lamech was 182 when Noah was born. Okay? So you add 187 182, and you have 369. Then we're told that Noah was 600 when the flood came. So you add 369 and 600, you come up with 969, which is the length of the life of Methuselah, which would seem to indicate that Methuselah died in the year of the flood. Probably not killed by the flood, if he was really one of the generational spiritual leaders, but. His name, some think, implies when he dies, judgment. And so Methuselah dies and the judgment falls on the earth in the form of the flood. Verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands. Arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, it's interesting to note, suddenly we have a patriarch, who who lives out his life but dies a lot younger. He only lived to be 777 years old. Sort of like it is later middle age, you know. But what's interesting is that if you compute it, and, and we look at these as a straight chronology, he died five years before his father did, Methuselah which means, of course, he did not die in the flood. Now, it's interesting to note, and we noted this when we looked at the genealogy of Cain, that the only person in the genealogy of Cain whose words were recorded in Scripture were the words of Lamech. And now as you come to the genealogy of Seth, the only person whose words are recorded in Genesis are the words of Lamech. Now, there are two different Lamechs, of course. The difference between the two is very dramatic. The first Lamech, if you remember, was a man of arrogance and insolence, a man of violence. But this Lamech, the descendant of Seth, is a prophet of God. He had a son named Noah whose name apparently meant rest. About his son, he gave the prophecy that is uh, written there in the 29th verse. This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Some feel that this is simply a prophecy that he was saying his son would help out in his older years and so, you know, they would have some kind of social security insurance because of their having a son. Well, given the fact that they probably had numerous sons and daughters, that's probably not the meaning. It's more likely that it was a prophecy of Noah as a type of Christ. For example, in a totally corrupt world, we're told that Noah alone found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 eight. but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a very, very significant conjunction there. It describes the horrible conditions, and we'll be looking at that next Sunday, of the pre-flood world, and then it says, but Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Just like a bright light in the midst of seemingly impenetrable darkness. Secondly, Noah alone was obedient to the Lord's commands. 22nd verse of the 6th chapter. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Whatever God said, Noah did it. A man not only of faith, but of obedience. Faith without obedience is meaningless. And of course, the whole little epistle of James makes that very clear. Thirdly, By faith and obedience, Noah built an ark, a large boat, which became the salvation of the human race, in itself a type of Christ. And Noah himself became the heir of righteousness. Hebrews 11, verse 7. I'll just uh, turn to it quickly here. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He became the one who would receive the righteousness that came down through that patriarchal line, represented by Enoch particularly, and and deposited in Noah, and his act of obedience condemned the world. If Noah had said, no, I won't build a boat, what would God have done? Well, obviously God knew and God sovereign. So it's, it's silly to speculate that way. But anyway, uh, by his act, the world was condemned. And then fourthly, Noah's obedient sacrifice again foreshadowed the death of Christ and elicited a promise from God. If you look at the 8th chapter of Genesis, verses 20 to 22, this is after it's all over, the flood is over. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offering on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Now we have to realize this is anthropomorphically speaking. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. He will never again curse the earth with a great flood. Why? Because mankind is born depraved. And because of his grace, he's going to allow time to continue so that the plan of salvation can be worked out and those who were called before the foundation of the world will be drawn into the kingdom. It's of further interest to note here how old Noah was when before Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born. He was 500 now, it doesn't say that about any other patriarch. When their first-named children are born, they weren't, nobody was over a hundred and something. This guy's 500 before these three boys are born. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that he had no other children. But if he had other children, they perished in the flood. If he had no other children than these three mentioned, It could have been that his first wife, maybe his only wife, was barren until the appointed hour. And then God made her fruitful that she could bear these three sons, or it could be that she died and and he, by a second wife, was given these three sons. The passage does not mean that when Noah turned 500, he had triplets. There are three verses which shed some light upon this, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish with this. I think that's about the end of your outline anyway. In the 10th chapter, the 21st verse, And also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Jace, Japheth, children were born. Now, some translations read Japheth the elder. Whichever way it was, it indicates that Shem and Japheth were not the same age. Okay, that's the point there. Back in the 24th verse of the 9th chapter, And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, we'll look at that story when we get there. But the point is that one was the youngest son, and that's Ham. So we know that Shem and Japheth are not the same age, and that Ham is the youngest of them all. Then finally, in the 11th chapter, the 10th verse, these are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old. He became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. That would seem to indicate that Shem was born when Noah was 502 or 503, depending on whether after the flood means after the flood began or after the flood was finished So what we have are three sons born sequentially after Noah has turned 500. And those three sons, of course, will be those who become, as best as we can ascertain, men of faith, at least to the point that they cooperate with their father in building the boat and going on board the boat. How would you like to have a 500-year-old father? But what's interesting is they still had three and a half centuries to fellowship with him before he died. (laughs) So it wasn't all bad. Next week, we'll begin with the sixth chapter.